That's not in the script, Mr. Brunsky. But it'll get a laugh. But I don't want a laugh here. I want... You want my opinion, Mr. Dobos? No, Mr. Greenberg, I do not want your opinion. All right, let me give you my reaction. A laugh is nothing to be sneezed at. This is How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It is February 1960, and Will Ross is joining us today to discuss Where Is My Treasure, a.k.a. When I Was Dead. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Well, here we here we go. Our first real episode. I don't really have an intro copy written. I mean, I'm going to be... Oh, no. I know. So I've got here archival pull quote from a film. Basically, I'm going to just start each episode with a pull quote that I just cut from the movie. I have one that... I'll give you a little place over there. If you, if you tickle us, do we not laugh? <laughs> you can put that in. That, that's, that's, and if you can't get the rights, you can just... Not what Felix Brissart sounds like at all. Oh, my God. This is already a travesty. For our first episode, we have here Will Ross. It's me. Who has gone from co-host and co-creator of our podcast, Film Formally, to, in your own words, the Greg Turkington of yeah. this podcast, which is a reference that all everyone listening will get. I'll show up now and again, probably. Here we are. We've got a bit of a tall order here because, unfortunately, the gap between the moment Ernst Lubitsch was born, which was January 29th, 1892, and 1916, which is the year our first film of the podcast, When I Was Dead, also known as Where Is My Treasure?, uh, was released. Uh, that is a fairly long gap. So we have a little bit of rundown to get through before we talk about this movie. So Ernst Lubitsch, born to Simon and Anna Lubitsch. Simon was a Russian Jew who emigrated to Germany, uh, Berlin specifically, and met uh, Anna, who was a German. Simon was a tailor and his status as a tailor will become a little relevant in in our next few episodes, actually. He was known as a kind of a strict father with a uh, taste for the ladies. Um, uh, Ernst claimed to have had to constantly pay for his father's locksmith bills late in life. <laughs> Lubitsch had three siblings, uh, Richard, his older brother, who was a bit of a hothead, fought with his father, and two sisters, uh, Elsa and Marga. Ernst was known as kind of the reserved, uh, reasonable one of the family. Ernst's first job was at a textiles facility. Uh, his father got him the job, and within a week, uh, he had started taking night classes in acting. And this is where we have to talk about Max Reinhardt, who was a kind of titan of the early 20th century German theater. Um, he was the managing director of the Deutsches Theater. Reinhardt's style was eclectic, and he drew from you know, numerous influences, um, but he was famously precise and also notably gentle and collaborative in his working methods. In German theater at the time, there was a kind of... Um, expectation that the director, a theory that the director should be dictatorial. Reinhardt's style uh, used a softer touch. So he was known for kind of combining the talents of his collaborators and and uh, who, who often speak quite highly of him. Uh, and what do you do when you're a untested, young, aspiring actor looking to make a mark in Berlin? You work with Reinhardt. And how do you get an audition with Reinhardt? Well, in Lubitsch's case, he approached Victor Arnold, a prominent stage comedian of the era. As an audition, uh, Lubitsch played Shylock. And in his words, he played Shylock as it has never been played before or since, I hope. <laughs> so throughout 1911, Lubitsch moonlighted as Arnold's apprentice while working for Simon before eventually getting a apprenticeship with Reinhardt, which was reported in August 1911. He appeared nearly always at the bottom of the bill in Reinhardt's productions uh, through 1914 and beyond, but 
1914 is where another thing happens, and that's where Lubitsch's career as a director and as an actor in cinema begin. His first uh, recorded appearance in a film that we know exists, and this is where we have to kind of qualify everything. There, throughout Lubitsch's career and almost all film artists of this era, um, there are many films that are lost, and uh, other films where the existence of casts who worked on it is unclear because it's been lost, and often uh, there is no record that is 100% reliable of who worked on it. So the first film where we can basically say, yes, he he was an actor in this movie was was 1914's The Firm Marries, and was quickly followed by a sequel called The Pride of the Firm, in which he appears as a tailor's apprentice. By the second film in that series, he had moved from a supporting actor, as far as we know, to essentially the star, and so began a career of some prominence as a comedic actor in the German scene. Of course, both are lost. In uh, in the summer of 1914, he directed his first film called Miss Soap Suds. Then throughout 1915 and 16, he directed a number of films, uh, all of which are lost. All of them. The earliest surviving Ernst Lubitsch film is in German, Wo ist mein Schatz, which translates to Where's My Treasure, uh, also known as When I Was Dead. Up until recently, it was uh, Shoe Palace Pincus was the oldest surviving Lubitsch film. Interestingly enough, due to certain poorly sourced research in the early goings of this podcast on my part, I had uh, Shoe Palace Pincus as the first episode of this series. You had signed up thinking you were going to do the second episode. And I whoops. wanted the most ignominious film in the whole lineup. Yeah, yeah. and you chose the first one uh, without knowing it was the first one. So congratulations on that. But before we get into this film in depth, I want to ask you about uh, your relationship with Ernst Lubitsch. What made you interested in coming on to an Ernst Lubitsch podcast other than the fact that your dear friend Devin is running it? Like my history with Lubitsch starts out in pretty standard ways where, you know, I'm I'm a teenager and in my early 20s and I'm really trying to learn a lot about and connect with as much um, cinema history and world cinema as possible. So when you go through lists and stuff and you're looking for, you know, like the most acclaimed and popular films of a certain era, when you're in like the 30s and 40s and you're looking at Hollywood material and especially Hollywood comedies, then you're going to stumble on Lubitsch's work, right? Like the the big ones, Trouble in Paradise, uh, Shop Around the Corner, all those. And I enjoyed him well enough at the time, but I think I was like too young and inexperienced as a viewer uh, to totally key into the nuances and the sophistications that uh, makes his comedy really work. Not that you have to have like an extremely complex understanding of cinema to do it. But I think you have to at least be comfortable enough with viewing films um, of that era or of that ilk, at least in order to fully clue into what he's doing and, uh, you know, follow it beat for beat the way you need to in order to fully enjoy him. But I never uh, really got passionately into him. And I mean, the, the short answer is that, like, I got more into Lubitsch because you are my friend. You just started watching him more, and uh, over time, it was. I think you realized more and more how much what his cinema was and what he was all about overlapped with your personal interests. And so, you would bring him to movie nights. You would make wild claims like the Merry Widow is top tier Lubitsch. All these, all these crazy things. It is. So I, you know, over time, I started to appreciate him more myself. I mean, I, I thought like I wrote a couple of notes here because like. Ultimately, my experience um, with Lubitsch um, and my ability to contextualize him is, is always going to be running a little bit behind yours. So I thought I would quickly, for listeners who, given this is an early episode, uh, are still fairly 
new to Devon, except for all you film formalians out there. <laughs> I thought I would talk about a few of the overlaps in Lubitsch's interests and Devon's. You know, oh, no. an admiration and taking pleasure in European culture, which coexists with your taste for deconstructions of social conventions and behaviors. Uh, your love of art with a precise, exacting form, uh, especially when these elaborate structures are willing to culminate in a simple practical joke, something you do a lot in your own work. You love practical jokes. Um, and the less meaningful the payoff, the better. Um, and your interest in uh, the intersection of and clash between political complexity and personal emotional incentives. To get like, a little bit more serious, I think that's uh, something that you think about a lot. So it's been interesting watching you get more into Lubitsch over time in that sense. And so to some degree, my interest in Lubitsch uh, is a bit inseparable from my friendship with you and my continuing to know you and learn more about you and understand you better uh, as a person who I love and know well over time. And that said, because I like you very much, I also like Lubitsch very much. Right? <laughs> so you would not have liked Lubitsch at all if you'd never met me. It's I, on the record. No, I would have because there's a, because like the kind of person, the reasons I'm friends with you, you know, overlap with the reasons I like Lubitsch, right? It's just that like having the personal connection helps deepen it. I know you're joking around, but that's that's honestly how I feel. I don't think there's any director I know of who uh, quite. Not to say that you and Lubitsch are one to one, but who quite like embodies me on a uh, on such a direct and uh, uh, holistic level. So I actually got I first became acquainted with Lubitsch uh, actually because this was 2014. We had all just seen uh, the Wes Anderson film, uh, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember in quick succession, you and Tim Brayton and at least a third person had all mentioned uh the Ernst Lubitsch comedy from 1942, uh, To Be or Not To Be. Yeah. And I went, okay, you know, as a huge, I mean, I think Grand Budapest Hotel is one of the greatest comedies in screen history. And I, I went, okay, I guess I should, I guess I should do my homework and, uh, <laughs> and, and check out this, this other film. And I, I watched it and it was one of the very few times where I remember immediately uh, upon watching it, I turned to Anya and immediately said, that was one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. And that's only happened like, four or five times in my life where I've been able to watch a film and, and immediately uh, I've come to the conclusion that that is one of my favorite movies. And so immediately I w went to work trying to um, you know, explore his other films. So, you know, I mean, what caught my eye about To Be or Not To Be, and we'll get to that in a year when I record that episode, was the thoughtfulness with which it attacked a political ideology through humanism. Um, yeah. It's one of the most humane uh, politically angry films ever made. It's its relationship with satire and its gentleness combined with its acid uh, were this incredibly potent combo for me. And it, even though none of Lubitsch's other films really do that, none of them are acidic, I think, uh, in the same way that To Be or Not To Be is. I, I kept finding out more about this guy uh, by watching his movies. I didn't really research his life until uh, a couple years after I started watching his films. And the more I watched from this guy, the more I learned about him just as a, as a human and the more I liked the guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, We can reference that that one blog post about how Jaws was the first. Uh, this, we're, uh, this is a rabbit hole worth going down. But, uh, <laughs> when we were like in our teens, there was this blog post that made its you know way around the blogosphere and cinema about uh, how cinema was really only came of age with Jaws and yeah, that yeah, cinema has yeah. only been really a fully fledged art form since 1975. 
And there was a response to that, which I, I do not know who made this response, but it was some critic who said, you may not believe in ghosts, but we invented them in the late 19th century. Yeah. <laughs> this argument was basically that film was a way of communicating through time and especially communicating your own humanity and personality through time. And to me, learning about Lubitsch was the most I've ever felt that become real for me, where mm. his films are not personal in the most obvious sense, right? He's not making the Fablemans. That's um, going to really date this podcast. <laughs> you know, he's not making films that are explicitly about his life with a couple of exceptions. And even then, it's the most tenuous of connections, right? Like, Clooney Brown is about the European immigrant experience in the U.S. for its last minute. Um, that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's always incredibly indirect and offhanded, but getting to know him through his films has nothing to do with his films being autobiographical. It has everything to do with the way that, you know, you start to notice the way even actors deliver lines. And and I feel like even though I've almost never heard him talk, I mean, he only ever acted in his silent films. I feel like I could guess how he sounds <laughs> because right. all of his actors, if you listen to the way Lubitsch's actors speak in his talkies and the way that those same actors speak in other films, there's a difference. Yeah. And the way his ideology is humanity are, are communicated through the stories he tells and how he tells them, basically, which is the most basic thing you can say. To me, that's the most beautiful thing about cinema is that you can get to know someone through their work. And mm. I've never encountered a director. I've enjoyed getting to know more. And it's a little bitch. Uh, that brings us to today's subject, which is when I was dead, a.k.a. Where is my treasure? Two titles, one of which I think we can both agree describes the film significantly better. Maybe um, domesticity was the real treasure <laughs> kind of thing. In, the, in, the, in this household, we still we still we still make fun of Indiana Jones for. I'm, I'm going to try and avoid plot summaries in this podcast as much as we can. Um, but I figure in the case of these e extraordinarily obscure early films, a couple words on what it's about would help. In this film, uh, Lubitsch plays a man named after himself. But if you know anything about Lubitsch's living situation in World War One, where he was actually living with his extended family, like his father, sisters and everything, he plays a character with the same name as himself in this film who doesn't seem to resemble the real Ernst Lubitsch at all <laughs> in living situation or personality. So it's an interesting decision. So anyways, in the film, our character named Ernst Lubitsch Goes to a chess club, uh, comes home drunk to his wife and his mother-in-law, and it's a last straw. His wife threatens divorce, and his mother-in-law essentially kicks him out. And then his mother-in-law goes to a marriage agency and tries to find a new husband for her daughter. And hilarity ensues as Ernst Lubitsch, the character, not the director, gets hired into his own household as a valet in disguise. And, uh, you know, hijinks ensue. He drills a hole in his, in his wife's suitor's spoon. So it doesn't work. He does a very poor Dude, job soup accident. cutting potatoes. Now, was this his first one that he directed period, or in contention? Or did he have an earlier one that we know he directed that's lost? We know he directed uh, a handful of films before this. Right. Okay. This is just the earliest surviving one. It doesn't feel like the work of like that you would see from a director in this era who was totally green. Mm -hmm. right? There's a bit more of a solid grasp on continuity and composition and uh, stuff like that than you would often see from just like totally rookie directors of shorts in this period. Yeah, although nor is it nearly as sophisticated as, you know, for example, the stuff Chaplin was doing at the time. You know, The Rink or like 1AM or the, I think those are clearly much more sophisticated. Yeah, and it's hard to talk about this film in general without 
comparing it to not just Chaplin's work, but like um, the Keystone comedies, like the Max Sennett stuff. What about a little film called Intolerance <laughs> released this year? <laughs> How can you watch this film and not, not think, think of, of Intolerance? intolerance? It's, it's clearly not like the work of a director who is completely green. You're right. And I think you can see that in the relative sophistication of the cutaways. So for those of us, you know, maybe less versed in the visual structures of mid 1910 silent cinema films you see from like the 1915 to 16 era are played almost entirely in single wide shots per scene. So you have one big wide shot, you know, you know the proscenium, it almost, it, it's almost staged like a, you would imagine a theatrical play, right? You have yep. actors who are running around a single camera setup, usually bounded by the edges of the frame. The camera does not move. Um, but in this film, you have a handful of close-ups, mostly of Lubitsch horrendously mugging for the camera. I don't, don't want to say horrendous, <laughs> but like, uh, we, we should talk about the mugging. <laughs> yeah, the mugging is <laughs> arguably the core of the film. Let, let's get into that. Halfway through the film, the character puts on a wig and pretends to be his own valet. Is it valet? Okay. Uh, as soon as Lubitsch, the character, halfway through the film, puts on a wig, pretends to be his own valet, he immediately uh, becomes a Marx brother which is an anachronistic reference, I know, and starts mugging for the camera incessantly. And I, and I don't mean like in the indirect way, mugging for the camera. I mean, he looks at the camera every five seconds or so and uh, raises and lowers his eyebrows comically, uh, inviting us in the audience on the joke. Scrunches his mouth, opens it wide. All the, yeah. yeah. Basically, he's saying to us, can you believe this shit I'm getting away with? Constantly. Yeah. That, that's, that's the vibe of, can you believe this? Oh my God. Oh, and... Uh, there's something lovely about it. Yeah, well, I knew that would appeal to you, especially that he turns into a rabble-rousing goblin (laughs) halfway through the film. (laughs) He does. The revenge he takes. So when his wife takes a new suitor or sort of, you know, it's it's a little convoluted, actually, the the suitor situation with the in-laws. But the things he does to undermine him are the most inefficient. (laughs) Like, he drills a hole in his spoon and... Uh, and it, and then the only reason why it's effective at all is it takes the suitor a, an, an entertainingly long amount of time to figure out that eating soup with a spoon that he has accepted there's a hole in it isn't really possible. Yeah, I think this is a good example of how the film's comedy in a lot of areas uh, feels relatively underdeveloped mm-hmm. uh, compared to a lot of the more successful comedies of the era. For instance, he drills the hole in the soup spoon, right? So you can you can you, you know you're anticipating things going wrong. And then the guy, you know, it takes him a while to figure it out. And he's mugging a little bit himself, not directly to camera, but and uh, he figures it out. And then he keeps trying to drink this, the soup. Right. Mm-hmm. And for me, the disconnect there is that it takes a moment to like kind of logic out like, oh, why does he keep trying to drink it? Like, oh, maybe because he doesn't want to like embarrass his hosts by like pointing out to them that they have faulty uh, utensils. Yeah, exactly. But then I thought, and like, obviously, he, he doesn't seem to be playing that, though. Yeah. And well, and I think there's also a problem here of there's not that structural moment where the wife or the ex-wife and the mother-in-law lean in and ask, like, oh, how's the soup? And he has that moment of, should I say it or not? And then he decides, like, oh, it's good. And then we see him keep drinking then. Right. Like, to me, that's the that's the punchline. But there's just not quite that structural specificity to like really pay off on the yeah. results of the gag. And you see that I'm not I'm not going to like say every example, but you see that elsewhere in the film too. somewhat. That's very distinct for Lubitsch, right? Is I, I mean, like relative to his later, better known works, mm. is that this film is really dependent on playing a comedic concept and then just mugging to the hilt uh, yeah. for everything that concept is worth. Right. 
I mean, I mean, it, it's also worth remembering that Lubitsch was all of 22 years old when he made this. Doesn't look a day over 40. <laughs> that, well, wait till, I mean, the next film, Shoe Palace Pincus, uh, he plays a teenager. Uh, mm. he's, he's the single oldest teenager in world history. <laughs> How do you do fellow kids kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's like Robert Redford in the natural uh, level. Unbelievable. Right, right. By point of comparison, let's talk about the usual things we would expect in later Lubitsch films. I mean, yeah. you have we, we have to mention the Lubitsch touch, which is essentially a marketing phrase similar to Hitchcock is the master of suspense, uh, etc. Uh, that was associated with Lubitsch's films and especially his marketing campaigns. Uh, his films are often said to have this kind of ineffable quality. Where everyone, you know, so the legend goes, everyone has their own definition of it. <laughs> you know, it's the special thing he brings to all his films. Um, I kind of read it as a way with inference and implication, an indirect way where the audience kind of participates in making the meaning of the film by, you know, something offhanded occurring on screen, a little implication, and then uh, you, the audience, can put two and two together and go, oh, that's what that is. Billy Wilder, famously a Use the example of the scene from The Merry Widow where, uh, although he attributed to the smiling lieutenant, which I think is funny, that Billy Wilder, what, is, what does he know? He only wrote Ninoshka. There's a scene in The Merry Widow where a king leaves his younger wife alone in the bedroom so he can go about his ruling job. And he passes by his lieutenant, played by Maurice Chevalier. Lieutenant goes in to the room, uh, closes the door behind him. We don't see what's going on. We cut to the king. King realizes he's forgot his sword. King goes back in the bedroom comes out and with with what he thinks is a sword, but he realizes that the, the belt of the sword is uh, uh, not his belt because it's for a much thinner, younger man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, he goes in and, you know, then the chaos ensues. He realizes that his wife has been, uh, you know, unfaithful because who can resist Maurice? I mean, again, to explain the joke, because there are multiple layers of inference there, right? There's the, the audience has to jump through multiple hoops to actually figure out what the joke means. We aren't shown anything on one level, but also even like even the level of the belt, the implications of emasculation <laughs> of, of that belt being there mm -hmm. um, and the belt being designed for a much more, you know, conventionally virile man. There's a lot there. And again, this film has uh, a couple moments where I think we see a bit of a gestational version of that, mm -hmm. um, but they're all very obvious. And there's not much to figure out. Like um, you have the exchange, Lubitsch playing Lubitsch saying, I wear the pants in this household. And then right. his mother-in-law says, those are long johns. Yeah. And again, there, there's, there, there's stuff to unpack there, but it's not very, it's not that deep. Yeah. <laughs> well, like the, one of the obvious things to look for in Lubitsch is door stuff, right? He tends to stage things with an emphasis on doors, right? Like the, mm -hmm. you know, like the way people interact with them, uh, how they're used as passage between rooms, why they're used as passage between rooms, the timing that people enter them or approach them, etc. Mary Pickford had that famous complaint that Lou Bitch is the director of doors, not of people. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it is, it's one of those things that is there, but it's also dangerously possible to overanalyze it into like, everything right like every time you see a door you you like point and go that's Lubitsch right yeah and and I mean in this one the door I mean there is a a couple of points at which doors play specific plot his inability to get into the door to his home so he sleeps in the stairs that sort of thing yeah exactly like I, and I think that's like I think there is something significant to that in that the early stretches of the film have Lubitsch being invited to play at a chess tournament that night right 
And he enthusiastically accepts, but his mother-in-law says, you're not going to go out. And um, then Lubitsch gets angry and is like, yeah, I'm going out. And for some reason, as soon as his mother-in-law says, you're not go you're staying right here. Um, his wife, who was very supportive seconds earlier, suddenly changes her tune and gets upset that he doesn't want to stay there. It's not totally clear to me what's going on there. And I think it might be just a dramatic shortcoming. But so Lubitsch goes to the chess tournament and we intercut between him at the chess tournament playing against this guy who takes an agonizingly long time for every turn to his mother-in-law who wakes up in the middle of the night, discovers that he's not home and locks the front door so that he can't easily get in. And so we cut back and forth between him at the tournament and her, you know, discovering his absence and setting this up. And then finally he gets home and we get a shot of him reaching his hand in through the front door to try to reach the chain lock and undo it. Mm. And then she swats it away, right? Mm. And this use of door uh, of the door as a point of convergence after a sequence of intercutting is, I think, the most single sophisticated formal device that Lubitsch uses in the whole film. And so I, you know, I can't escape the fact that it hinges, so to speak, on a door, right? <laughs> There's another moment involving a door that isn't quite as uh, Lubitschian, but, you know, is, is of some interest because I was very impressed by its staging. And that is the, the best scene in the movie is happening. Lubitsch is peeling a potato extremely <laughs> the, poorly. The close up of that is chaos. Yeah, it's 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 legitimately my favorite part of the movie. Um, just solid gag. Good mugging. It's not totally clear whether he knows what he's doing um, until he finishes and then he grins at the camera and I don't know if he's realizing or if he's just uh, if he knew all along. I don't know that little imp. But anyway, so there's a maid in the room who is kind of um, doting over him, flirting with him. And then he pranks her by throwing what's left of a potato into the bucket of water in front of him and, and splashing her in the face. And she has this moment where she reacts hugely and is kind of frustrated with him. And then she turns around and suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, the mother-in-law character is standing there at the entrance to the room, right? I was like, whoa. And like you watch it back and you like go like, oh yeah, the door was opening. So she walked in. It wasn't like totally out of nowhere. But the staging of that moment, so that there's that big moment of motion, right? There's like a big gag to justify it. So she's like reacting very, you know, physically and she's like uh, moving erratically and she positions herself right at the entrance to the door. So that because of all the action and because of all her motion, your eyes are not going to be fixed on the slowly opening door. So that when she turns and reveals the mother-in-law behind her, it's, it's genuinely a surprising moment because the viewer hasn't been set up to visually anticipate it. Uh, so it's, it's uh, I don't want to say that this is anticipatory of how Lubitsch would use doors in general, but I do think it's a very fine moment of staging. And, and notably, it's a moment of staging that's not even centered around a gag. In fact, a gag is used to set up this moment of non-comedic staging. And it's a moment that's there to just set her up as more of an imposing villain character, the mother-in-law, uh, more than to tell a joke or anything like that. So I admired that. And, and so I, I think if there's anything that connects to his future use of doors, it's just his enjoyment of using doors as a device right his 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 ability to use doors in such a myriad of ways right there's also something interesting uh to go back to the chess tournament 
after I watched the film the first time, I, I was trying to figure out why does he play chess, right? Because the thing about the film is that it's quite a broad comedy. Now, to contextualize a little bit, um, most surveys that I've read of German silent cinema tend to emphasize that German silent cinema, including during the period when this came out, emphasized heavily um, intellectual and artistic concerns over mass appeal, right? Over And so, for example, Anton Case, he wrote that German cinema was part of a self-proclaimed art cinema, self-consciously in competition with the other arts, uh, end quote, and uh, quote, the originally plebeian and unrefined mass entertainment of film. So he characterizes uh, the American development of mass appeal entertainment as arising from the entertainment needs of, as he puts it, millions of newly arrived unschooled immigrants who enjoyed the silent movies precisely because they required no knowledge of English and adopted a subversively anti-authoritarian point of view. But clearly there was a popular comic cinema like this film just could not exist if there wasn't uh, a, a fairly wide appeal for this kind of cinema. I think that viewpoint also kind of marginalizes the popularity of giant historical epics in mm -hmm. Germany. Um, Lubitsch was actually probably most widely known for his historical epics in the yeah. late teens, early 20s. And so that that does seem a little like to, like it's kind of prioritizing, you know, the, the crack hour vein of cinema or the the vein that he um, highlights in from Caligari to Hitler. Yeah, that I could have you in as much as because I, I thought about uh, it and I thought it makes sense to the extent that and epics would be included in this is that the influence of this idea of um, culture and refinement in uh, in art uh, affecting cinema. I think that is present again, not only in his epics, but even here. Right. So the question is, why does Lubitsch, the character, play chess, right? Because he is set up as somewhat of an anti-authority figure. Mm -hmm. The film has a funny relationship with that, though, because he is a bourgeois character, clearly. Yes. He's a middle-class character. And it, it's also worth noting that this is mid-World War One, in the middle of uh, incredible impoverishment. Arguably, what we're seeing here is an attempt to bridge a gap, so to speak, between the uh, culture and class of um, higher classes, including, you know, middle class and uh, upper class or bourgeoisie and uh, lower class people. Right. So Lubitsch is, you know, he's suddenly like ejected from his home. He doesn't have an obvious regular source of income. He basically explodes the social structure of a bourgeois household. Right. That's what mm -hmm. happens. And so in that sense, as an anti-authority figure, he makes sense. But he also appeals and is someone who you can enjoy guiltlessly because he is so clever and because he is so capable of playing chess, right? And playing chess very well. And there's something there too about the um, old, very upper crust looking player that we see him going against takes ages for individual moves, gets crushed by him, right? So there's a kind of critique of class pretension in that sense. So I think there is something there in the way that Lubitsch uh, plays with the connection between class status and pretension, right? Mm -hmm. And the disconnect between class status and cleverness or ability or, or skill or um, however you want to then diagram those qualities together. And it's not just that. It's the fact that 
Lubitsch, his name in the film is Ernst Lubitsch, right? And, yeah. and we know that he was already a somewhat popular figure among audiences at this time. And I think it's interesting to think about how he kind of fulfills the role of a recurring character who the audience is familiar with, right? Like um, um, an, an anachronistic but still relevant example would be Daffy Duck or Bugs Bunny. Or you could like to go uh, somewhat more contemporary, you could talk about Bill Murray, right? Where he's not called Bill Murray in every film. But in most of Bill Murray's films, he's effectively playing Bill Murray, right? Where yeah. he's a bitch slubbish. He, you know, is, you know, he's uh, quick to turn a fast buck. Um, and he's always the smartest guy in the room, but he doesn't really care that he's the smartest guy in the room, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of his shtick. Lubitsch overlaps with some qualities of that shtick, but the fact that he plays chess well is distinct from those other characters that might speak to the cultural specificity of the moment. Now, you can also say that like, I'm maybe reading too much into an individual film's relationship with the wider culture, but I do think that context is interesting to consider uh, with this film. The lack of authorial distance kind of implied by naming a character after yourself usually means you're going to kind of play off your own persona. And so that means that Lubitsch would have had to have had enough of a persona to play off of, which is very impressive considering that he, I mean, he was only five years into his acting career, six, and uh, had only been in films for what, a year and a half at this point. I want to talk about tinting because this is mm. back again. And, um, yeah, I have questions about this. I, I fully admit I do not know uh, the uh, history of the tinting of this film. The best available restoration of this film was released on the Masters of Cinema release of the later film, Madame Duberry. And it has a very distinct pattern of tinting uh, that, you know, follows a lot of the usual silent film conventions of, you know, tinting night scenes with a dark blue or teal tint. Um, but there's some interesting stuff going on here. There is uh, the bright purple title cards. <laughs> there is the uh, use of yellow tinting, which doesn't seem to have in my opinion, like an incredible rhyme or reason. Um, most of the domestic scenes are tinted yellow, but so is the chess club. Mm -hmm. And then the exterior scenes, they, they aren't tinted in a distinct color. They're just neutral grayscale. But then some of the other domestic scenes are grayscale too. And I, uh, for the life of me, I, I've gone through this film twice. I could not tell you exactly what the intended rhythm of that is. Uh, any thoughts, Will? Because it's such a, I mean, there, there's a, it's so rare that we get to talk about a film with actual like, you know, dye bath tinting. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, the first thing I want to note is that different prints uh, for different releases of an individual silent film can be tinted differently. Mm -hmm. So being definitive about how a film is intended to be tinted or moreover, whether the original filmmakers were, you know, determinant of the tinting is tricky. So I, I just want to say that before. And I don't know the specific tinting history or knowledge about this film, but. As you said, there is some patterning in terms of a lot of the interiors, uh, especially when it's not explicitly nighttime or a darkened room being sepia and uh, a lot of nighttime scenes being bluish. But I think there is something to be said for the use of the tinting to distinguish place, right? So there's a moment when we see his wife writing a divorce note, which, by the way, I want to come back to mm -hmm. um, what she divorces him over exactly, because this is I have questions. And that's in sepia, right? And then 
immediately after that, the very next scene, the maid takes the divorce letter from Ernst's wife and rushes out of the room. Then we cut to Ernst arguing with his mother-in-law. And suddenly there's a tinting change to purple or a kind of pinkish color, right? So the question is, why the tinting change? They're in the same household, right? And a moment after we cut to that scene, the maid rushes in and delivers the letter. And the closest I can think of is that the tinting establishes that they're not in the immediately adjacent space, right? So it's trying to imply that she's not listening to the two of them arguing right outside of her door. That's that's the that's the best justification I can come up with. Then there's other stuff that's, you know, purely grayscale, for instance, that you can justify uh, through a mixture of, oh, you know, distinguishing setting as well as, you know, natural daylight in an interior, right? And the interiors maybe being a bit more, you know, implied either candlelight or uh, tungsten electrical fixtures. That's the most I could kind of make sense of the tinting. To some extent, too, I think tinting is... It's a it's a lot of it is a tool of spectacle, right? So, you know, you change the color and there's, you know, the immediate novelty of a changed color. So there's an appeal in that. But as far as its formal reasoning, that's the closest I could come to explaining some of the seemingly arbitrary color choices. When you see enough silent cinema, you, you, you encounter it kind of becomes eventually white noise some of the tinting because yeah. you uh, so much of it feels arbitrary and a lot of it was, you know, not even applied by the original filmmakers yeah. um, or like, you know, it was often like a regional thing because remember each individual positive print has to be tinted. So you'd have inconsistencies among, you know, like for example, there's so many examples where they'll find a tinted version thinking for decades that it was only available. It was only ever released in monochrome. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Yeah. It, it's no intolerance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Intolerance uh, for context has one of my favorite moments of editing period that is only possible through tinting where, it intercuts between an interior that is sepia-toned and an exterior that is blue-toned. And the guy outside is working his way up to a window and he's got a gun and he's going to push the gun through the window and shoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it cuts back and forth between the two spaces and so it's like sepia-blue, sepia-blue. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to the guy outside the window starting to push the gun through, blue-toned. And then we cut to the interior and suddenly it's entirely sepia-toned. Mm-hmm. And it's just a shock of him entering from a different space is heightened by this, right? So we don't get, if we had color film, for instance, then the, you know, we would expect the blue from the exterior light to wash into the room a little bit. So mm-hmm. there would be less of that hard color separation. But the fact that there is that established hard color separation that we accept through the conventions of tinting means that that cut can, you know, land with a real hammer. Yeah, it's. I highly recommend if you don't watch all of Intolerance, what finding that moment of intolerance and stealing the idea for your own movie. What film, in your opinion, makes the best use of tinting in that silent era, dye bath tinting kind of right, right, milieu? Right. So let's let's discount, you know, the 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 George Méliès stuff, right? Where where they're hand painting? Yes, yeah. clearly we're talking tinting and tinting. yeah, clearly you know the Impossible Voyage is. Wait, so. are we including toning in this discussion? Uh, yes, let's call it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So so like the difference, by the way, is that. Uh, tinting affects the highlights of an image with color and toning mm-hmm. uh, affects the uh, shadows. Shadows, yeah. yeah. This is a tough call and I, I haven't really thought deeply enough about the idea of you know full films using enough and it would be an interesting thing to look into. 
But the film that comes to mind, it might seem an obvious choice, but I really love it for this, is uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is just so precise and smart mm. in how and when tinting is applied. And it has a lot of um, dichromatic uh, work where you know the image is both tinted and toned, meaning that the shadows will be toned into one color and the highlights will be tinted into a different one which produces a, a really amazing uh, surreal effect. So that that's that's my favorite off the top of my head. There's other ones like uh, L'Anne-Humaine, a uh, French film, um, has some really cool uses of tinting that similarly to Caligari meshes with the production design choices really well. Mm -hmm. you, I could cheat a little bit. It's not It's not that I think it's like that great, but I love the wildness of a lot of the tinting work in the Giorgio Moroder version of uh, Metropolis. I, I, as soon as you kind of, as soon as you, you said it might not count, I was like, Will's going to talk about the murder Metropolis. <laughs> it's, it, it's a novelty, but it's like an excellent novelty kind yeah, of thing, yeah. I think. But I, I want to try to think of something that's not like sci-fi or fantasy. I or... mean, you know my favorite. What is it? It's Napoleon. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, Napoleon, uh, as seen at least in the Brownlow restoration, has some incredible uh, tint mixtures. Really smart stuff. All, all all Gantz cares about is the power of the contrast, right? So he'll just cut from a bright red frame to a bright blue frame, just so like the color memory of your eyes freaks out for a second. Yeah. Um, he also does the famous ending with the French the tricolor split yeah. screen, which is obviously I mean, come on. Yeah. It, <laughs> Sheer uh, spectacle, yeah. It reminds yeah. me a little bit of in Godard's Goodbye to Language, Rest in Peace. There's, if you know how 3D camera works, uh, 3D cameras, it is literally you have two cameras on the same rig. And so, like, when you put on 3D glasses, each of them is it like basically showing you one of the camera's views. Mm -hmm. And what Godard does at a couple points in Goodbye to Language is instead of panning the entire rig, he will pan one camera independently of the other on the rig. And so there's and so there's a moment where your eyes are trying to resolve the two images together, right? Like it's trying to make sense of it as a 3D image. But because it's the relative perspective of each camera is shifting in weird ways, so like your brain, like if you have not experienced this yourself, like I, you, I can't fully express to you what the experience is, but your brain freaks out. Like there is a moment where your brain mm -hmm. just absolutely freaks out until the cameras are far enough removed that your brain just registers them as two completely separate images. Just to double down on this rabbit hole of 3D, um, I think uh, Prototype, which is the Blake Williams film from mm -hmm. 2017, does this too, where um, he'll send each of your eyes a different color at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. Like he'll, he'll, he'll have a strobing uh, effect that is offset in each eye. So your right eye is white, left eye is black, and switch back and forth. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to finally see that. Uh, I have the Blu ray on 3D. So we just have to find a 3D you gotta television. You've got to get a VR set. That's yeah, what yeah. you got to do. That's actually probably the smartest way to do it. This is such a good Lubitsch podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, yeah, so yeah. returning to Lubitsch, I have one more question, which is do his wife and his mother in law think that he's having an affair and that the chess tournament is a cover for the affair? I wondered that. Because he is out for an unusually late time, right? Mm -hmm. So you could, like, I was wondering if the, like, extreme slowness of his opponent was trying to kind of signal to us that, like, hey, chess tournaments don't usually take this long. Why would he be out until one o'clock plus in the morning? I, 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 I had that little... I, 
And when she writes the divorce note, she doesn't say like, mm-hmm. you know, you're, I don't want your passion for chess to like sour her life. She says, I don't want your passions to sour, which seems, it sounds very euphemistic. Which leads to two interesting explanations for it, right? Mm-hmm. One is that it is intentional and that it's Lubitsch already having the faculty to plant that seed so subtly that you don't know if he's planted it. Yeah. And I think maybe planting it too subtly so that you, you think, no, no, that couldn't be the case. Yeah. She just doesn't like chess. Or us just knowing Lubitsch from later films, we're imprinting that kind of level of yeah. sophistication on this film when maybe he is literally just, oh, yeah, this guy, he really loves his chess tournaments. This is the question. This is yeah. the tricky thing about, you know, watching and analyzing formative works, which is why I was yeah. stoked because it's very hard. Because, I mean, <laughs> if this film was made even like three years later, they he totally... You know, chess would be a euphemism for it. He would be playing chess with the ladies. Yeah, he would be playing 4D chess. (laughs) This gets at how we treat formative works and how tempting it is to reverse imprint our own ideas of who this director would later become. Because there's no real evidence at this point that Lubitsch should even, you know, we don't really know whether Lubitsch should become the person yet who is capable of making later films. Or, yeah. And then whether he was just working on expressing himself or whether that those aspects of his personality were still... In Chrysalis? Yeah, in Chrysalis uh, to flower later. And Chrys- Chrysalis has become flowers. <laughs> <laughs> that biologist. To those of us still listening, why watch a film like Where Is My Treasure? Uh, actually, yeah, sorry, L- little sidebar. There's no treasure in this movie. <laughs> um, there is... I, I kept expecting there to be some sort of MacGuffin involving treasure. So, okay. So the only information I was able to find on the title, where is my treasure is that, uh, it was imposed by the censors, the German censors. And mm. so it could be, they just were allergic to any reference to death because the great war was on. But then there's so many other titles you can land on. Like I've been kicked out of my house. <laughs> Because it, it's it sounds like a classic example of a silent film being retitled by someone who is purely thinking from a marketing appeal standpoint and with no consideration of the content. So just to kind of loop back to our uh, to my point before I went on the next tangent there. Sure, great tangent. Why watch a film like When I Was Dead, aka Where's My Treasure? If someone off the street were to ask me, say, Hey Devin, uh, name a film I should watch. A good one. I'm not going to say Where's My Treasure. Right. But Shouldn't be your um, first, second, or fifth Lubitsch film. But to get back to the 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 synth jaws argument, but why is art and cinema valuable? If our goal with this podcast series is to get to know Ernst better, to learn to appreciate his works, and maybe find a thing or two out about the context in which he worked, watching lesser films, in my opinion, is as essential as watching you know the masterpieces of which there are several coming up because. Films like this are not only again, interesting on their own accord, but can be used as a point of comparison against other films. Um, we mm-hmm. can learn, okay, here's where that thing we love started to form. And here is the journey, right? It, it, it turns something truly great like The Doll, which I think might be his first you know, truly incredible movie. It turns The Doll from, wow, look at this great movie, to a journey to that movie. Yeah through these often lesser and often fascinating films. If we're here acquainting ourselves with a ghost, there's no better place to start than a film that will allow us to better appreciate the other films via its reflection. And again, this film is not without merit, especially if you're uh, interested in mid-1910s film, who among us is not? 
There is a lot in here that can provide context too for other films made in Berlin that might be more famous in the mid 1900s. What's the first Berlin made film then? The first German film that most people know is it, is it still uh, Caligari? Oh, like as far as like you know, people with a passing familiarity with early cinema would know it. I yeah. think Caligari's yeah, the Caligari's the first one. one. Yeah, yeah. I think everything you're saying is right. I'll also say that even setting aside all this contextual stuff. You know, the great artists are always rivers, not a series of lakes, you know, all this mumbo jumbo. Stuff. Not a series of tombs. <laughs> but even setting all that aside, I'll say like it's a 35 minute film of a of a guy being a goofball. You know what I mean? Like unless you are someone with a strong aversion to, you know, weaker comedy and who has like no interest whatsoever in the aesthetics of early cinema. I think it's just you know, it's worth your time to just like kill 35 minutes and watch this guy be a goofball. You know, if you're someone who like even like just watching to be or not to be or whatever, it doesn't appeal to you or you feel like it's imposing to watch, you know, like this like sophisticated comedy masterpiece or whatever, then, you know, I'm you can do a hell of a lot worse than watching like a guy goof off and poke holes in spoons for 35 minutes. Uh, all right. So my here's my final word on the film. The moment when his wife slash ex-wife rejects her would-be suitor and he's hiding behind a curtain in the background. <laughs> and up until that you point need giant in, air quotes for the word hiding there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything up until that point of the film, I thought like, man, the mugging is not working. The, like the, this mugging's too much. It doesn't do the trick. It is just like <laughs> I like the mugging the whole time. It is just pushing the comedy conceits. Like you can tell, it's just stretching them out a lot. Uh, you know, it has it has occasional moments, but I just thought it just does not work. And then it, that was the moment where like it it clicked and be, it is so extreme. He is contorting his face and his body so much in that scene. He is so absurdly visible throughout. <laughs> he's basically like this like notes for comedic Nosferatu, right? Yeah, this is the moment like, I felt like he's like a little goblin. There's the bit where he's just hold, like he's holding up his arms. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's incredible. So like you for nothing else, you know, watch watch for the moment where he like slinks out of the room like a little goblin right in front of his wife. Thanks so much for joining us, Will. It is an honor to have you be the Greg Turkington of this podcast. As I learn how to host this, it is quite a bit of a different experience than film formally. And oh, yeah. you've been very supportive this whole time. So thank you so much. Next week, Shoe Palace Pinkus with Dara Jaffe. Head over to www.ernstcast.com for the links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 